you would, open your Bible. If you do not have your Bible with you, that's okay. You can take any type of reading device, or if you can look at the, the Pew Bible in front of you, open it to page 892. 892, and you will find it there. John chapter 6, we're going to be starting, verses, uh, starting at verse 41 and reading down through verse 40, or 58. Uh, we will not cover these all today, so no worries there. I, uh, that was my goal originally, but I should have known better. Um, but nonetheless, so we will read them all and put them before you this morning so you keep everything in context. And then we'll be looking at the first half this morning and then finishing that up uh, next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday. So John chapter 6, starting at verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, I am the way or I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say to us, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves, for no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks His blood has eternal life, drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Father, we pray your blessing upon your holy inspired written word. And Father, now as we, we look at this text before us, uh, Lord, would you illuminate our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, to reveal its meaning to us. Lord, you did not hide anything from us. You wrote it in plain black and white words. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand it. And Lord, not just understand it, but to apply it this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The battle for life. We hear much about life in the news these days, do we not? And so I call this the battle for life. And just jumping right into this text, I want you to feel the tension in verses 41 and verse 42. If someone took water and turned it into wine, and if that same person healed a nobleman's son without even seeing this nobleman's son, and if that same person then healed a man who was sick for 38 years, sitting beside the pool of Bethesda, 
outside of the city gates in Jerusalem, that everybody's seen this man sitting there for 38 years. He healed that man. And if this same person took five loaves of bread and a couple of fish and fed 20,000 people with it, not just a taste, not just a bite, but, the, but they could have a buffet. It was like a buffet. They could eat all they wanted and still have enough leftovers. You like leftovers? Still have enough leftovers for 12 baskets full of fish and bread. Now, I might be inclined to give this person the benefit of the doubt. What do you think? If this person says something that I don't quite understand, it doesn't seem quite right to me, and I'm not quite sure what's going on with this person, I might be inclined to give this person the benefit of the doubt. What do you think? Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Well, you know what else sounds reasonable? It sounds reasonable on how these folks responded. Because this is how they responded. This is the question these folks had in their mind. Is this not Jesus? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Think about somebody you grew up with. Somebody that ran around the neighborhood with you. Maybe you worked with this person. Maybe you went fishing with this person. Maybe you went hunting with this person. Or maybe you did what, 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 whatever we do with our friends and our neighborhood people. Maybe you, you worked with this person. And all of a sudden, this person, this guy, starts making all kinds of claims and starts doing some pretty spectacular things. In fact, this guy says, you know what? Before I lived in Westover, Maryland, I actually lived on Mars. Right? I mean, Mars is a real place, right? Some people think there's people that live on Mars. So this person says, you know what? I, I, before I lived in Westover, Maryland, I lived on Mars. Now, this person that you grew up with, this person whose house you used to go to after school, whose mom used to give you snacks, whose dad used to come home and play football with all the neighborhood people, this guy, this guy, same person, claims to be, the same person who you've seen on the evening news heal the President of the United States' son without ever seeing the President's son. You've seen this guy that you grew up with supposedly heal a guy down the street that as long as you can remember for his whole life was in a wheelchair. And all of a sudden, the guy is no longer in the wheelchair. You witnessed firsthand this person that you grew up with all of a sudden solve the town's water problem that was corrupted. We don't know how it got contaminated, but it did. And all of a sudden, this guy cleared up the town's water problem. Just like that. And then, and then there was this hurricane blowing up the Chesapeake Bay. It was blowing right up the Chesapeake Bay. You know how they do around here. And this storm was supposed to be bigger than Hurricane Sandy. And this guy that you grew up with, that you played football with, that with his dad, you knew his mom, this guy walks down to Crisfield, and he goes out on the city dock of Crisfield, looks out across the bay as the storm is coming up, and just like that, the skies are clear blue. There's not a ripple on the water. Just like that. And because of this hurricane, you know what we do around here, right? I say around here, I say we, because I feel like I'm a local now, because as soon as there's a threat of snowflakes, I'm running the food line and getting my bread and milk. I don't care if it's a week from now, I'm going to get it. And so this hurricane's coming, and I go in the food line, man, it is empty. 
Nothing. But there's five loaves of Dave's killer bread. I love that stuff. I don't care so much about sardines, so there's a slab of salmon laying there. That's it in the whole store. And so this guy you know goes in the food line, right? And he prays over food line, and boom, just like that. The store shelves are full. In fact, there's so much food available. It's sitting in palace, in the aisle. It's sitting outside, out back. And they don't know what to do with all the food that has now ended up at the food line in Crisfield. Sound far out to you? Sound kind of crazy to you? You see, you, you feel the tension? You see the problem? How would you respond? I'm a logical person, I think. Don't ask my wife, but I think I am. I'm, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a person who likes facts. I like things written down. I, I like tangible evidence. This guy did some inexplicable things. And yet, on the other hand, I grew up with this guy. I know this guy. There are times when the evidence must be weighed against itself. And from this, a conclusion must be reached. Does what you have seen override what you know? And does what you know override what you have seen? In the 20th chapter of John, John records this about, the, about doubting Thomas. Right? We've all heard about doubting Thomas, and who wants to be a doubting Thomas? Not me. And so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they buried him. They seen him die on the cross. They seen him stuffed into that tomb. They seen that. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears into a room for all the other disciples. But guess who wasn't there? Thomas wasn't there. And the other disciple says, oh man, Thomas, you missed it. Today was not the day to miss the, the discipleship meeting. <laughs> Jesus showed up. Thomas is like, ah, Jesus didn't show up. No, he didn't. Unless I see his hands. Unless I see. Now, I know I was a chicken, and I stood way off. But I seen that soldier thrust that sword into Jesus' side. I seen it with my own eyes. And unless I see his hands and the scar of his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. A few days later, at the next discipleship meeting, guess who shows up? Thomas, but guess who also shows up? Jesus. Jesus says, there you go, Thomas. Here's my hands. Here's my side. And Thomas says what? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Because you have seen me, Jesus says, have you believed? Blessed are they who believe and have not Seen. You feel it? How are we supposed to believe? 2,000 years later, when those who walked with Jesus and seen the things done by Jesus had difficulty believing in Jesus. So we'll just put that tension before you and we'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on. I want to um, go back just a little bit 
Well, this is such a great text. I, I want to go back just a little bit to um, last Sunday where they said, Lord, give us this bread. We want this bread. And in verse 36, he said, I have said, I have said to you, you have seen me. You, you, you've seen all those things I have done. And Jesus says, yet you do not believe. And then today, we've seen it again. Jesus says in verse 43, why are you grumbling among yourselves? Why are you complaining among yourselves? Why, why are you doing that? We'll look at that a little closer next week. But why, why are you grumbling against yourself? And it caused me to wonder, why didn't Jesus get discouraged? I mean, he's doing these unbelievable things. And people are like, eh, I don't know, Jesus. Could you do one more trick? What kept Jesus from getting discouraged? Well, if you look at the verse right after the two that I just read, read verse 36, look at verse 37 if you have your Bibles there. Look at verse 37. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will certainly never cast out. Look at today's verse. 43, they're grumbling. 44, Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So why did Jesus not become discouraged? Well, verse 44. Verse 44 has three reasons why Jesus did not become discouraged. And, and if you are a note taker, then you can put these down. Three reasons why Jesus did not become discouraged. First, the denial. We'll look at the denial. The second, we'll look at the divine action. And then third, we'll look at the promise. Just very briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these this morning. So you should jot them down so you can. So first, the denial. The denial in verse 44. The inability of a person to come to God on their own. Look what it says. No one can come to me. No one can come to me, Jesus says. Look at second, the divine action, the irresistible grace that we sang about this morning, the irresistible grace of God, unless the Father who sent me, Jesus says. So no one can come to me. That's a negative. The positive, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then third, we see the promise of verse 44, what the Father starts, the Son finishes. I will raise him up. I will raise him up on the last day. See, see, this is why Jesus did not become discouraged. This is why he was guaranteed to succeed. Jesus did not come down from heaven. There's bread that came out of heaven. Jesus did not come down out of heaven in vain. Jesus did not come under some illusion of, well, I hope some will believe. I hope. Okay, Father, if that's what you want, I'll give it a whirl. I hope, I hope some will come. He did not come under those illusions. If he would have, he would have had reason to be depressed. But he, was, he had this guarantee from the Father. And so, um, this morning, for the time that we have left, I want to look at a few things. Um, the first, we have, to, we have to look at verse 44, says I spent so time on there, and, and many also have spent so much time on there, and it's a verse that, that can be disputed if you follow such things. And so we want to look at it. Um, and so one of the things that we have to look at, and one of the key points of this verse, is this idea of draw. 
this idea of draw that we see in verse 44. So, so no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, Jesus says, draws him. So what is meant by this word draw? Well, how do you understand draw? If I just say it in the English language, right? I say draw. What comes to mind? Well, we could see, we could think, well, okay, you drew, a, I draw a name out of a hat, right? There's this action. I draw a name out of a hat. You could also say, well, no, when I think of draw, I think of a, of a tie. The game was a draw. It was, it was a tie. You might say, no, I kind of like to draw, <laughs> Right? I'm, I kind of like to draw a picture. So I, I think of an artist as I think of, think of draw. Or, or you might say, well, no, I kind of I have this idea of, uh, of a horse. Uh, of, <laughs> we're Mennonite, right? So everybody says, says, well, aren't you guys like Mennonite? Aren't you guys like Amish? It's like, have you ever seen a horse and buggy? Have you ever seen a horse out here drawing a carriage? Did you like that? So we can also see it's a horse-drawn carriage, Right? That's also how the word is used. And, and what I want you to understand in those words, I mean, those are just common English words, right? I mean, we understand what we're saying, but they're actions that aren't done on their own. So in this, in our verse today, in our verse today, the word draw is just requiring force because of the inertia of the object being dragged. It's just a simple definition out of any Greek lexicon, and there's another one, Bidag, that I really like, and it, it says like this, to draw a person in the direction of value for inner life. Hmm? To draw a person in the direction. So another thing, since this word, this, this verse is up for much debate, we want to continue to study it just a little bit, and so to do that, we need to broaden our context a little bit. How else did the gospel writer, did the author, use this word, right? How else did the author use this, this word? And John used it uh, five times, of course, in our verse today. And I just want to quickly put the other four before you. In John chapter 12, 32, he says, I will draw Jesus again speaking. Same type of context as we had today. I will draw men to myself. In 1815, we got Simon Peter having a sword. And I love this about Peter having a sword, and he said, did what? He drew the sword, and he whacked off the guy's ear. Ear. I don't, really don't like that part. So we have the word draw there also. And then we also have in the 21st chapter of John twice, and it's that they were not able to haul in the net, right? The net was so full of fish, they could not haul it in. And then a couple of verses later, Peter went down and he drew the net. It's an action. They didn't move on their own. They were drawn. But it's also used one other place in the New Testament, and we find it in Acts chapter 16, verse 19. They seized Paul and Silas when they were out there preaching. They seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace. They drug them right out there. They didn't go voluntarily. They dragged them out into the marketplace. They forced, my own definition, a force placed upon an object Maybe against its will. We can assume that. But we have to continue to study this word. Um, I'll just take you on a journey that I go through week by week, and maybe you'll find it helpful, but hopefully in the end it'll help you understand this verse. Um, we have to continue to look at this and, and see how else is it used. And in the Septuagint, the Septuagint just being the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
So it is used there a couple times, the Greek word, this very same Greek word, and, and this will help bring more fuller meaning to this verse and to this word. Ah, Jeremiah. God speaking of Israel, the man Israel, says, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. You feel it. Song of Solomon. This ought to be inside of a Valentine's Day card or something, but Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, draw after you and let us run together. Let us run together. To draw me after you, let us run together. Well, we need to take it a step farther. What about some non-biblical writings of Greek that we could look at that maybe this same word is used? And, and I'll only give you one example. It's found in, in, in the writings of Maccabees, 4 Maccabees, chapter 14, verse 13, where, where it says this, Observe how complex is a mother's love for her children which draws everything toward an emotion felt in her inmost parts. Hmm? You feel it. My definition, a gentle persuasion of force placed upon an object to convince it to come. To convince it to come. See, see these two are often played as in conflict with each other. They're, they're like put, pitted against each other, but they don't have to be. They don't have to be at all. See, first we got this idea of a force placed on an object, and, and maybe it's depending how we're wired, or maybe it's if we're, you know, how, how, how we function maybe even in life, but we see this force placed upon an object, and I'll drag you if you like it or not. You're coming. We can bring that attitude, right? Or maybe, maybe this is more like you. A gentle persuasion of force. It's a nudging. It's a wooing. <laughs> right? The Dutch philosopher and Christian scholar Erasmus, he, he compared this, uh, uh, this gentle persuasion like dangling a carrot in front of a mule's nose to, to convince it to come. To convince it to come, to move. Can the mule resist the carrot? I don't know. Depends how many carrots he ate prior to that, maybe. <laughs> I remember having a conversation with uh, my pastor back in Ohio. And he said something, you know, something often we hear, he said, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. He said, I can make it drink. How do you do that? I'm going to feed it some salt. Hmm. That's, a, that's that gentle persuasion, is it not? That conversation came back to me this week as I thought about this, and especially this verse. How, how do we see it? How do we understand what is being said here? I want to bring you one more picture before your mind to overload your images, but um, in Acts chapter 16... 
um, Acts chapter 16, Paul had that Macedonian call, right? Where Paul's trying to figure out, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? So he says, ah, come on down here to Macedonia. So he goes down to Macedonia to Philippi, which was a leading city of the area. He goes into the city, and on, on, on the Sabbath day, which would have been Saturday, on the Sabbath day, he goes into the city. No synagogues, none. There wasn't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. And so what was the custom of the day? It may very much be like what we would do if there is no churches available. They're just on every corner. Uh, but nonetheless, if there was none available, we might meet at the coffee shop. We might meet at the Grove. Best coffee here in Westover. Um, don't know if there's any other options in Westover, but um, nonetheless, hey, I can claim that. Never mind. Sidetrack. Come back. Um, where was I at? Oh, yeah, no synagogues. And so Paul does what they normally would do. Well, I'll go down to the local watering hole. I'll go down to the river. And sure enough, there's some people down there. They're praying. They're praying and they're worshiping God. They're, these are Jewish people, very religious people. And they're, and they're praying and, and they're worshiping. And so we'll pick it up there in the 14th verse of Acts chapter 6, in case you want to write that down. A woman named Lydia, it tells us, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She was listening to what Paul was saying. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Did Paul put out a good argument? I don't know. What does the text tell us? The text tells us that the Lord opened her heart to be able to receive the words Paul spoke. Through the foolishness of the the message preached, God chooses to save us. Why does God choose to work this way? I don't know but he chooses to save through the message priest. And so here they are. There's Sylvia. Or I mean Lydia. Where'd Sylvia come up with? I don't know. Did I say Sylvia earlier? They're used to me by now. Lydia. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's the battle for life, is it not? It's the battle for life. Isn't it abundantly clear? Isn't it abundantly clear? Verse 45, Jesus continues, and Jesus now points to the prophets and says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if you have heard and if you have learned from the Father, you come to me. This is written in the prophets, and they shall learn, and they shall all be taught of God. Well, obviously, we've got to look into that a little bit. Jesus is quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. He says those exact words here somewhere. He says in 54, 13, he uses these exact words. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. Jesus might have also been referencing Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, where Jeremiah said this is talking about the new covenants prophesying for the coming Messiah. It all points to Jesus. And he says this, he said, um, and they will not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Jeremiah continues, Behold, the days are coming. See, Jeremiah is pointing forward to the new covenant. He's pointing forward to Jesus. There comes a time where you don't have to depend upon what I'm saying. You don't have to listen to the prophets, and you don't have to listen to these other people and decide, well, are they really a prophet? Because if they're not, if if what they prophesy doesn't come to pass, maybe we need to pick up this practice again. No, maybe not. But if it doesn't come to pass, then we're going to stone them. 
right? There comes a time, Jeremiah says, well, you won't hear that stuff anymore because God is going to speak to you, to you, to you, to you. Not through me, but to you. Everyone, not just the prophets. But Jesus qualifies it, doesn't he? Verse 46, Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father. No, 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 not careful, Jesus says. Whoa, 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 you got to hear me out. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. <clears throat> he has seen the Father. So Jesus puts that qualifier in verse 46. But let's go back to verse 45. What is meant by that? And they shall all be taught of God. And they shall all be taught of God as we think about this idea of the battle for life. So, so what, is, what is Jesus saying here? Well, we must be very careful with what Jesus is saying. I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have heard some kind of wild things. I remember one of Courtney's friends in Kansas, and I've probably said this before because I'm out of original stories. So, <clears throat> And <clears throat> I remember her friend, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and um, her best friend, her, her dad was going to leave her mom. Hey, he had a new girlfriend, and God said he should do that. Well, come on now. I mean, you don't even have to believe in God to know that ain't right. Right? I mean, we hear things like that, and it's like, well, that's a no-brainer. You're just whacked. You're nuts. You're not hearing right things. You're hearing from somebody, but it ain't God. Right? It's very clear. And there it is. It's all out there. It's clear. But other times, right? Other times, it's not so obvious, is it? Other times, it's not as cut and dry. In the 1823-ish, during what was known as the Second Great Awakening, there was this guy by the name of Joseph Smith. And we'll just pick on him. I could pick on many people, but, but this guy by the name of Joseph Smith, he was trying to discern, well, I need to join a church. I need to join a denomination. What should I join? And he claims that an angel of the Lord came to him and said, Mr. Joseph Smith, <clears throat> I want you to go over here. I've got some, some tablets buried on, 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 of gold, and they, and they will teach you, and they will introduce you about some ancient people whose customs have been lost, and I want you to pick up these customs. Not, and start another denomination, and today, voila, we have the Mormons. Very subtly, we have Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I love it when they come to my door. They've got, they all figured me out here by now, but I've told you that anyways. But I love it. Come on in, I'm a Jehovah's Witness also. And they soon realize, oh, we're speaking of two different things. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's kind of bad. I really do that. Man, I miss them. They need to come back again, but... Um, I mean, we, we, so subtly, right? So subtly. See, there is a danger in how some use this verse and verses like it. For instance, we got 1 Thessalonians 4.9 that says this, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God. But we must continue to read, right? We can't stop there that we like to do. We are taught by God to love one another. To love one another. Now, what's Paul referring to? What's Paul referring to? Well, obviously, he wants his audience to recognize the teachings and the example of Jesus. How Jesus lived his life. God, Jesus taught you. You've seen how Jesus worked. You've seen how God functions. You've seen how Jesus laid down his life for his friends, and not just his friends, but also his enemies. You do the same. This is what God taught you. This is how we must understand and be careful with these verses. Paul in no way is teaching that there will be some new revelation. 
No, no. Or that they shouldn't seek counsel from other people. Paul is writing to counsel them. We must receive counsel. And there's sometimes people say, no, 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 I just hear from God. Well, obviously you don't. Right? We must be careful. We are taught by God through the illumination of His Holy Spirit, of His text. The Bible. We don't worship the Bible. I love what Martin Luther said. Um, let me see if I got this. He said that the Bible is the cradle in which Jesus is laid. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible is the cradle in which Jesus is laid. We don't worship the cradle, but we certainly want to make sure the cradle can hold up Jesus, don't we? So we hear from God by His Holy Spirit illuminating the text for us. The canon is complete. The Bible is complete. There's no new revelation. Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Listen, folks, we must be careful. We must be careful of some of the devotionals we read where the author subtly or blatantly claims to have a new word uh, from God. Um, just not the case. <clears throat> I want to um, bring this to a close this morning and leave it there for you, but uh, I want to read verses 47 through 51 and, and again put that before you as we think about the battle of life. Because you may be wondering, what does that do with the battle of life? Well, 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 you'll see. And so the battle of life, I want to read these verses again, just, just so they're before you again. Uh, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this, this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give is my life, is my flesh for the world. I am the bread of life. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In verse 41, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. In verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. It's the battle for life. Who controls life? Who controls your life? Who's in control of life? Are you? Is the state in control of life that we see in the battle this past week in Alabama or wherever it was? The, the, the control of life? Are the doctors in control of life? Do they have a say? What about the mother carrying a life in her womb? Who's in control of life? Who gets a say of life? In whose hands, this morning, in whose hands do you place your life? In whose hands do you place your life? Psalms 139, verse 16. I love Psalms 139, as you already know. And the psalmist David there writes this. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. When as yet? There was not one of them. David acknowledges his birth date, his death date are all in the hands of God. Whose hands do you place your life? The battle for life has been fought, and the battle for life has been won. 
Will you accept the results? Or will you continue to battle for your right to life? And I'll leave you with this from the gospel song. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your grace, for your merciness, your wooing love, the way you draw us so gently to you, the way you hold us in your hands. Lord, we can't possibly hold on, but you promise you'll hold on to us. I pray, Lord, as we think about this battle for life, Lord, it's got such a broad meaning to it. But Lord, we, we draw it personally. And may we put that question to us. And I trust, Lord, that we will be able to give you thanks this morning that it is you who holds our life in your hands. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.